0: Welcome to the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. Naoko Kato, Japanese language librarian at the Asian Library at the University of British Columbia. Her dissertation is Through the Kaleidoscope, Uchiyama Bookstore, and Sino-Japanese Visionaries in War and Peace. Dr. Kato, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: In your research, you've looked at Sino-Japanese relations, particularly from the Taisho period and going into the 1930s. But could we say that the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period sets the stage for this new generation of Sino-Japanese relations?
1: Yes, let me just explain a little bit about my research in order to answer that question. So my research centers um, around a bookstore in Shanghai during the Republican period, so the Taisho period. I mean, it's owned by a Japanese Christian individual, actually, couple, and it's called the Uchiyama Bookstore. And it's very significant primarily because it was a cultural salon during the 1920s and 30s where Japanese and Chinese cultural literati gathered, and this was this is something that you wouldn't so much expect during the war period, you know, when you would assume that there really was not a lot of intellectual exchange. But it's not actually unique, or it didn't suddenly emerge in this period. You do have to look back on the Meiji period to wonder why on earth do you have these Chinese revolutionaries, essentially, who go to this bookstore during the Taisho period who can read in Japanese, okay? These people were actually... Chinese exchange students that were in Japan during the Meiji period, I think from about 1896. There were only about 13 at the time, I think, and then the numbers increased to 1,000 a year, to 8,000 a year even in 1905, 1906. So they obviously created, amongst the exchange students, they created a network while they were exchange students in Tokyo. And this network you know, carried over when they did return to to Shanghai and, in fact, was a core group of customers at this bookstore. And you can also look at, um, because I mentioned that it was actually a Christian bookstore, right? Actually, the bookstore carried books on the subject of Christianity in the beginning, and it served Japanese customers. But these customers said, you know what? We want books that are newly published, not just about Christianity, but on philosophy, you know, the social sciences. And so this is what attracted these Chinese return students who were in Shanghai at the time, who could read Japanese, uh, who had originally even gone to Japan to really gain knowledge about the West in in a quick way, I suppose. And because Chinese and Japanese have a common written script, it's, it's cheaper to go to Japan, it's easier. That's how they even went to Japan in the first place, but they still, you know, were trying to gain knowledge in order to, it really comes from patriotism, I suppose, because both Japan and China were facing imperialism, right? And they were trying not to be colonized, and they really felt as leaders of China that they needed to awaken the Chinese people to, no longer was China the center of this World, right? Where knowledge flew, um, knowledge was flowing from China to Japan, but people like Lu Xun or Mo, uh, Guo Moro, Tian Han, these May Fourth writers, right? So Lu Xun would be the father of modern Chinese literature. They wanted to write. They used literature um, to awaken the Chinese populace to, to say, look, you know, we actually need to reflect upon ourselves. We need to change some, some things about what we do. And Japan was modernizing. Japan was facing similar situations. So that's why there was actually quite a lot of interaction between the Chinese writers and Japanese writers. So these Chinese writers were reading things produced by Japanese left-wing writers, for example, and they gained knowledge about Marxism, you know, socialism. These, these books were really the, the bookstore is unique in that way, that it was called like the nipple of knowledge, where these Chinese revolutionaries sought knowledge. So it appears in many of their memoirs. And of course, Christianity also is another um, strain that we can trace back to to the Meiji period as well, because as I said, Uchiyama bookstore first started with the sort of the Christian networks. That go back to actually Doshisha University, which was again created to modernize Japan. That there needed to be Christianity in order for Japan to face this era.
0: a little bit more about Uchiyama Kanzo's biography. Who was he? How did he get to Shanghai? You said he was a merchant, Mm -hmm. but how does he end up over there?
1: He's actually a Christian convert, so he really had hardly any education, formal education. I think he went on one of these dechiboko, like he went to work at age 12, I think, and he comes from the... he comes from Okayama, but he meets... Makino Toraji, who is who becomes later um, the president of Doshisha University, and actually Makino is the one who, after actually Uchiyama Kanzo converts to Christianity, he 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 actually was a glutton, like he spent a lot of money on good food and things like that, and he changed his mind through this church that's connected to Doshisha University, and he decides to go to Shanghai, and Makino. Actually, arranges for the books. Actually, when they when he does end up, actually he he set him up with this pharmaceutical company job in Shanghai. But also, when he was trying to set up a bookstore, because his wife didn't have much to do, the wife actually started this little bookstore and. Uh, the books that came through was from a publishing company that was a Christian publishing company, which Makino knew about. So there is that connection as well. So, no, he really didn't have formal education per se, interestingly enough. But he did carry with him books um, written by Uchimura Kanzo, the famous Japanese Christian pacifist. Hmm.
0: So, What year does he arrive in Shanghai?
1: 1912.
0: Okay, so just after the 1911 revolution.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think he even, yes, and so for the first five years he was selling eye drops during the first five, five years and then he fully takes over, I think, um, running the bookstore all the way past 1945, I believe, and then he goes back to Japan. And actually the bookstore, there is a bookstore in Jinbojo, the the bookstore, the used bookstore um, area in Tokyo, that is called Uchiyama Shoten, so Mm. Uchiyama Bookstore, and it sells books on China till this day. And it was actually founded by Uchiyama Kanzo's brother back in the 1930s, and it was catering the Chinese students who were studying in Japan at the time and also Japanese people who wanted to know about China. So there is that interesting connection as well.
0: What is it about the Uchiyama bookstore that attracts the May 4th writers like Lu Shun?
1: Well, there are many reasons because the bookstore had multiple functions, right? It acted as a safe haven at some point or I think they could talk about politics and they didn't necessarily meet these people unless they went there. So it's for personal connections, but it's also because it was you know, conveniently located, but mostly because they were able to acquire... Knowledge through through these books. Why did they go to this particular bookstore? Because it's interesting that actually there were multiple um, Japanese bookstores. It's not like the only one in Shanghai, but all of the other ones only catered to Japanese customers. Whereas this one, I think it does have some somehow something to do with the bookstore owner who who was Christian. So he he did have this sort of sense that you know there shouldn't be this division between Japanese and Chinese people. So there was that culture of um, acceptance, I think and he was he actually wrote about China himself. He was very much he was very critical of people uh, Japanese people who would just come and pretend that they knew about China right away. So he said, you know it takes a number of years to really get to know China and here it is. I'm showing you all the things that I think is true about China. And he would usually come up with very positive things to try to dissuade Japanese people from thinking that China is actually backward, etc. He would try to point out all the good things to a point that Lu Xun, his friend, who wrote a preface about his book, said, you know, look, you're, you're, you're saying such too good things, like the too positive, like the things you say are too positive about China. Look, I'm trying to get people to think rethink about their culture Right. So I think there is that sense so that people could gather over tea and discuss. And he was very good at bringing people together. So every time it almost acted like, you know, when people, Japanese writers would come to the bookstore and visit, it's like a customs, right? He would match people. So he would make sure that, um, you know, the Chinese writers would get to meet these Japanese writers like Tanizaki, Junjiro, and also, because he was a really good merchant uh, businessman who who knew what would be popular and what maybe these the the Japanese customers as well as Chinese customers would be interested in. He would bring in books that would be of interest, which was quite highly intellectual in nature, the newest items, and he had very good advertising skills as well. He was actually selling eye drops beforehand and, you know, came from a merchant background. So there are many reasons, I think, why this was such a popular bookstore.
0: perspective of Sino-Japanese relations, do we get a different view of the Meiji Restoration?
1: I think so, because usually the Meiji Restoration, at least in Japanese high schools, if you ask maybe an average high schooler, you know, what comes to your mind, it'll be, oh, that's you new all, right, which would be you leave Asia and then look to the West, famously, something I guess Ayukichi came up with the that's along at least. And uh, perhaps even in Canada the students would be would imagine the major period to be about westernization, right? All the modern stuff comes into play. But when you bring China into this equation, and I think there is this definitive shift in the worldview where China used to be the center for for centuries on end and everything came from China, centre of the world, and then there is this shift, but it doesn't, you know, there's not this sudden sort of abrupt change just to the West. I think Japan actually does play a role in transmitting knowledge about West to China, and I think that's the story that this tells, the, the bookstore story tells very well. And That's why there is a different type of interaction between Chinese and Japanese cultural literati, right? They do have this common, the West, I suppose, as some kind of a threat or, you know, where where they do need to modernize. So modernization, I think, is definitely in the equation, but westernization means many things. And in this case, through the bookstore, actually, there was a lot of translation that happened. Of books, right? So you have translation of Western knowledge into Japanese, and then you'd have these Chinese students who would be translating these Japanese books into Chinese for the Chinese audience. So I think it does give you a a bit of a different perspective in terms of, you know, not just a straightforward relationship between, okay, this can just be talked about in terms of Japan and the West, and the same goes for, you know, the World War II. Usually it's Japan against the U.S. But in fact, you know, there's a lot more to this story when you do bring in East Asia, you know, what happened between the countries like Japan and China and also through personal relationships because a lot of the times if you just concentrate on sort of diplomatic history or, you know, the history of uh, the government level type of laws and institutional change and things. You might not see it, but the bookstore story tells you what personal interactions took place in the confines of this space.
0: I think a very good illustration of exactly that point of how Japan acts as the kind of intermediary for the introduction of many of these Western concepts into places like China is that a lot of Western political terms, democracy, makes its way from Japan into China. And it's one of many examples of loan words that get defined first in Japanese and then enter China. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of this concept by Iwabuchi Koichi. who mm-hmm. talks about Japan as kind of making things palatable for oh. the rest of East Asia. But... Japan is able to take these Western concepts and render them into mukokuseki, like take away their nationality and Mm. make them nationless. And perhaps it's this that is the real kind of defining feature of Japanese culture is nationlessness. position here at UBC is the Japanese language librarian, which means you're in charge of basically all of our Japanese language sources. So so what kind of materials do we have here and how can they be used for research?
1: I actually have a really good range of material, both in Japanese language, things related to Japan that can be used to teach about Meiji in, in a very interesting way, I think, and also for research purposes. And I see three categories, basically. And so I'll go through them. The first one is the Edo maps and the Edo woodblock prints. And it's called the Edo map collection, but actually includes some Meiji era material. And this one is online. And this has been uh, probably the most popular source that's been used um, in classes as well. And what's interesting about the maps is that it shows how Japan saw the world, which May not be necessarily proportional or scientific in a sense, but it's in some ways it's very distorted. So you know, Alaska might be humongous, or you know, China might be huge at one stage, right? But it's interesting to uh, observe the differences across time, for example. So that gives a certain perspective. And then if you look at the recently acquired Meiji woodblock prints, these are. Similar to what I guess photographs would do in the modern era, media, it captures what's happening at the time. And what was very interesting to people was, you know, these new buildings, uh, structures, steamships or bridges or the new fashion, uh, different clothing, etc. So that also gives a perspective on how, I suppose, Japanese people saw. Meiji, Japan. So that's one category. But the second category, I would say, of material is on photographs. One is the Joan Cooper Robinson collection, which is the one, um, a collection of photographs taken by uh, a Canadian missionary who was stationed in Japan for about 30 years, so 1890s to 1920s. And he was in rural Japan, so he took photos of regular Sort of life of his community, so you would see photographs on women carrying babies on their backs, or you know, uh, people labouring in the fields in traditional attire, pushing coal, or you know, having baskets on their back, etc. So it's very much people at work, and that was somehow some of the, one of the things that he was attracted to. And then you have tourist photographs tourist albums, tourist photographs. And this is interesting because it targets specifically foreigners, quote unquote, who were visiting Japan. And so this is a collection of, you know, you could customize the postcards that you can put in an album and in places like Yokohama, um, which was trying to attract, I suppose, tourists. So you'd see photos or Postcards on harakiri or seppuku, you know, people people with their swords um, committing suicide or these women who might look like geisha, right? So the typical sort of Western images of Japan. So that's, again, different from John Cooper Robinson. And uh, the third category, I would say, would be the Japanese-Canadian-related material. And this includes the Japanese-Canadian photograph collection, uh, which mainly concentrates on the internment era, so the 1940s, but some of them are very interesting, from the 1907 period, which is when Vancouver had the race riots, when there was this huge influx of uh, migrants from Asia, including Japan, and what's what was called Japantown, which is Powell Street, there was a riot. And so you see photographs of individual stores with broken glasses you know, the owner in front of the, the store. So essentially it's depicting or recording the damage that was done to the properties back then. And that's quite different as well because you would think, okay, at the same time that you see these woodblock prints in these modern buildings, you have these Jap- this Japanese community facing this in Vancouver at the same time and that's all related in a sense right Um, Japan trying to gain um, equal status with the west so that's the Japanese Canadian photograph collection then you have the Japanese Canadian research collection which includes some material that's written in Japanese by the first generation Isse. some of them uh, would be pastors of a church for example who left records and they would write diaries during the Meiji period all the way to the internment era. So that's actually very, very precious material. And also the Tairiku Nippo and other Japanese Canadian newspapers. Uh, Again, that was published from about 1909 all the way to 1941. So again, covering covering quite a uh, vast period, including the Meiji era. And also, again, you see in those newspaper articles some of the concerns about, for example, enlisting in World War I or you know, labor issues or racial equality, those kinds of issues that were at hand at the time, which gives you again another glimpse and when you think about Japan's status in the world and global history and how Meiji might be seen from a different perspective. So I think what usually might be categorized under, let's say, Japanese history versus Japanese-Canadian history, versus history of missionaries. You know how there's this division, and people just research that and maybe just use English. or So that division, in a way, I think if you look across at all these materials, you can find ways in which they could possibly connect, and that would be perhaps interesting for research, uh, future research, as well as when you do teach students what what kind of perspective, you know, of Meiji would you be able to take? And I was just going to mention that part of this Meiji project involves the digital teaching resources and we're asking scholars to contribute their work for to write up visual essays, which will be utilising our resources that we just mentioned. So hope is that the UBC Library collection could be used for future research and teaching.
0: You mentioned the two sets of photographs looking at Japan in the late 19th and early 20th century, specifically the, the Cooper Robinson photographs and then the tourist albums. Can you elaborate on some of the differences between the collections and perhaps speculate on why the contents are different, what they suggest about views of Japan or Ways that Japan is presenting itself to the outside world versus how it was seen by the outside world.
1: Well, the uh, John Cooper Robinson, I think he grew up in Japan, and so he was quite, I presume, fluent in Japanese. So he has, he has a relationship with the local people, and some of the photos indicate that, you know, somebody would have had to have a close relationship with, with the people who have been taken. The fo- you know, to be allowed to take these photos, you'd have to be close to these people. So I think that's very different. The target audience is not for foreign consumption or anything mm. like this. This was purely he was just interested in photography and depicting the lives of these people.
0: And in many cases, they were pictures of his family, right? And
1: His family, too. So you see... Interestingly enough, yeah, pictures of his family in Canada, you know, how they would. Also, he also went to other parts of um, Asia and took photos, actually. But, um, yeah, it'll be uh, missionary family photos in Japan as well as, you know, people back in Canada, but also the local Japanese people, like people who are part of the, you know, blind school or whatever his um, mission was in charge of. Uh, would also be depicted there. But he specifically seemed to be interested in these people who are working in the fields, and I, I wonder about that. Interestingly enough, E.H. Norman, so you know, people who study Japanese modern history and the Meiji Restoration would cannot go without knowing him, but we actually have his collection, incidentally, and he was a son of a missionary as well. Very familiar also. These people are cultural intermediaries, you like between you know Japan and Canada.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.